Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Struggle Creates Strength. Struggle Creates Strength is a mental health platform exemplifying that everyone has a story. I always say that no two stories are the same, but every story has the potential to help someone else. On today's episode, we are joined by 21-year-old Aiden Taylor. Aiden is currently attending the University of Victoria and playing varsity soccer for the school as well. He's here today to speak about loneliness, some of his past trauma and experiences, and ultimately how it's shaped his life into what it is today. He talks about how it's never easy to be an athlete who struggles with mental health, and honestly, more importantly, how it's never easy to be a man who struggles with mental health. Also, this podcast is sponsored by Raincoast Clothing. Raincoast Clothing is a clothing company based out of Vancouver Island, Canada. They represent nature by embracing adventure, spontaneity, and health, both physical and mental. They have recently decided to join my mental health movement and donate 5% of profits from every item of clothing towards mental health awareness. Also, we have collaborated and created a Struggle Create Strength t-shirt, which has 100% of profits going towards mental health awareness. Go to raincoastclothing.com and help support mental health while getting yourself some great clothes. Now, I hope you enjoy Aiden Taylor's story and just remember that everyone has a story. Hey, how's it going? Good. How about you? Pretty good. Pretty good. Thanks so much for uh, obviously one, reaching out to me and two, coming on to the podcast and being vulnerable enough to share your story and just let us all know who Aiden Taylor really is. Yeah, no, not a problem, man. I first foremost got to say, I love what you do and love the platform and uh, it's an honor to be here. So thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Yeah. So basically with every other one, what I've kind of done is I've asked everyone Um, just to share their story and get kind of right into it, right into the deep depths of their story. But there's one thing that I just kind of want to ask you about first before anything, because I think it's a huge topic and that is Vikes Kicks Cancer. Do you want to, uh, do you want to tell us a little bit about Vikes Kicks Cancer? I would love to. (laughs) You got it, Lucas. So yeah, Vikes Kicks Cancer, it's a uh, foundation for one of our former teammates. Uh, we found out that Mackenzie Rigg had uh, been diagnosed with terminal stage four brain cancer mm-hmm. and hearing the news to have a friend, you know, so young, have a condition such as this, it, uh, it's tough to really process at first. Mm-hmm. And, you know, guys were instantly jumping on board with ideas. You know, what can we do for Mac? What can we, you know, get ourselves involved? involved in what can uh, the community do and through some brainstorming we had the idea to kind of collaboratively us and the women's team run 270 kilometers in service of the 27 people that are diagnosed with brain cancer every single day and lo and behold this happened just this weekend from november 20th to 22nd us the women's team and we've invited the community of victoria and other communities too you know the men's team over in thompson rivers uh, jumped in a little bit uh, ubco did their portion and then just you know random people all over uh ubic as well you know the men's rowing team track teams they all got involved and it was a really good uh really good you know community uh I'm struggling for words here, but yeah, it was just really good to see the community come together like that for, for one uh, guy who's very special to me and very special to the rest of the men's bike soccer team. Yeah, no, that's awesome. I know that um, I've been kind of following it all and just seeing, seeing what everyone's doing 
um, for this cause is like amazing. It is obviously it leaves everyone speechless and it's just, it's truly captivating seeing the community come together and support not only a great cause, but obviously a great person as well. And it's, yeah, it's amazing. And I just, yeah, I have all respect to um, what you guys are doing and what the community is doing on their behalf. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I, one thing I will say about Mackenzie, the dude's got a heart of gold and he's one of my favorite people here in Victoria. Obviously, I don't see him all that much. He's back home in Kelowna now with his family. Uh, but when I do, it's always it's always memorable. So yeah, yeah I'm really really rooting for him and really hope he uh, gets through this tough time. Yeah, that's no, that's amazing. Mm. Okay, so now we might as well jump uh, <laughs> jump into who you are and what kind of where your story stems from, and just obviously talking about some of the vulnerable things and talking about what makes you who you are and what's obviously pushed you to come onto the platform and share your story. For sure. For sure. I've got a couple notes here. Uh, that seems to be a trend with the podcast. So I yeah. thought I'd take it up. Um, okay. So my story starts, I'm from a small town in Northwestern Ontario. Uh, it's called Kenora. And I think we were just dubbed a city in the year 2000. So I was born in 1999 about a year after we had enough of a population to become a city. And I was raised by both my parents. Uh, they both have very good blue collar working jobs. You know, I come from a very blue collar family. And so we pride ourselves on, you know, hard work and, and putting in a shift and just, you know, really, really treating everybody fair with fairness and respect. And, uh, it's, it's something I carry with me on a day-to-day -day basis, that hardworking kind of work ethic. And I pride myself on that. Um, so to dive in a little bit to what my relationship is like with my parents, I guess we'll start with my mom because that one's the easiest. Uh, yeah. she's, she's an angel. She's been my guardian angel my entire life. I can always go to her with any type of issues I have, whether it be with school, people, coaches, whatever it may be. I know I can go to her. Uh, it wasn't always that way. And we'll get more into that later. But now I'm always, you know, something happens. I call my mom. Something little happens. Hey, mom, I got an A on a test. You know, something big happens. Hey, mom, you know, got dumped by my girlfriend. You know, I give her a call then too. Uh, now my relationship with my dad, that, that's where we can kind of get started with all the, the mental health issues. So, I think it was around when I was age six, so first grade roughly. And I can remember going to school one day and kind of an ordinary day, you know, teachers handing out progress reports or report cards or something. And I take mine home to my dad and, and I show it to him. And instead of being proud, and I also I should mention, I was a straight A student all through high school and whatnot so nothing to really bash myself over um but he looked at the report card and, and he saw you know a bunch of a's and a bunch of minuses and he saw a b plus and he looked at that b plus and he basically just looked at me looked at the card and looked at me and he said you better do better son that's 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 horse you can't be doing that and from that moment on my father basically just tried to instill a bit of fear 
into me. He wanted me to be a very straight nosed kid, very obedient, very yes, sir, no, sir, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am. And if I had any, you know, mistakes in general, he would, he would just unload on them. He would, he would never let me live it down. He would make me feel terrible for even, you know, going through with an act. And he just, he made me feel very small, I guess you could say. So starting with that young age of six and then just working forward from there, it's kind of been the tale of our relationship. Uh, Just to kind of get into some more of him, he had some very big expectations for me and he still does, which is understandable. Every parent wants to see their kids succeed. Uh, it just became to the point where it, it maybe wasn't healthy. And I'll give another story. So fast forward, I'm, I'm in the third grade now. And it's, it's after school and it snowed where I'm from. Me and, me and my buddy Jonathan at the time were, were throwing snowballs at each other, just being a bunch of idiots. And I throw a snowball in his direction. He dodges it. And it goes, keeps going, and it hits one of the older kids. Not a younger kid or anything. Like one of the older dudes, he was in like grade six or something, and I hit him. And I was like, oh, sorry about that. Um, thought nothing of it, you know, hopped in the car with my mom, drove home. Mom told dad, and I'm waiting you know, on the couch, and my dad comes home. And in a very aggressive and a very scary voice, for an eight-year-old he says go downstairs now right away I just go downstairs don't say nothing stand there wait for him and within a couple of seconds he meets me down there and through his own form of uh, you know call it negative retribution um, he comes up and he gives me a little smack and says how does that feel how does it feel to get hit why would you throw a snowball at a kid? I don't want to see that anymore out of you. No more reckless behavior. So right away, that tells me I can't go out and do anything fun like that. I can't go out and be a kid, essentially. And, and it developed this kind of hypervigilance around him because he was being very mentally abusive growing up and, and, and just trying to be a kid and, and, and have these experiences, well, already you're starting at a disadvantage when your parents is being hella strict. Mm-hmm. Almost, almost like I have a police officer watching my every move and I still have to call him dad at the end of the day. <laughs> you know, like it's, it's, it was tough. And, and it got even tougher when I started to play sports. And I, it was around that same age we didn't have much for soccer in my community. Our, our community is very hockey based. Mm-hmm. Um, we've hosted a couple of hometown hockey day in Canada's and all that stuff. And we're home to uh, uh, a midget AAA program that the community is very proud of. Um, I wanted to take a bit of a different route. Don't get me wrong. I still played hockey growing up and I, I had fun playing it, but I was also playing soccer at that time too. And I think I was around eight as well. And I had this opportunity to try out for a traveling team. The only issue was all these kids were a year or two years older than I was. Mm -hmm. 
I go, I try out. Um, and after a series of tryouts, I get a call from the coach and coach says, Hey, we'd love to have you. Love to give you a chance to play. And uh, let's see where it goes. And I'm, I'm through the moon. Oh my gosh, this is awesome. You know, I didn't even think I was going to have a chance and, and look, I'm playing with guys that are, you know, two years older than me. Mm-hmm. And, and from there just grew. Um, and I, and I got better and better and better. Only issue was, um, it got to the point where I'm, I'm in a game, I'm in a game situation and there's my actual coach on the sideline with the bench and other players. And then there's my personal coach on the other sideline. And I don't know which one to listen to more, <laughs> right? It's, it's, it's kind of becoming you know, like sensory overload. And all I can hear is him yelling and, and screaming at me. And, and he's basically just a psycho sports parent <laughs> at this point, you could say. Um, and the worst part about that wasn't, wasn't having him yell at me or scream at me. It was the fact that everybody else saw that he was yelling at me. Mm-hmm. And it was the embarrassment attached with that, you know, other parents can see this going on and, and other kids can see this going on too. So it, it's no, you're not hiding anything. And uh, the only thing that you're hiding is, is what happens after the game and what happened, what would happen after the game, after practices, even uh, because it got to a point where we would have to travel further for soccer um, he would again be super hypercritical and, and judgmental and, and really negative. And you got to understand how much that affects a kid mm-hmm. growing up, you know, not hearing the positive right away. You know, I, I hop in the car and I was like, Oh, how's that? And he's like, I thought you could have done this better. I'm like, okay, well, well, well what about this cool thing that I did? <laughs> what, what about these goals that I scored? What about all these other things? It's like, yeah, but you were, you were walking when you should have been jogging. So right away, can't get a break with this guy. It's, it, it, it felt almost impossible to try and please him. Mm-hmm. And just, just kind of backtrack a little bit. My family, in my family history, I think we're like genetically predisposed to uh, anxiety disorders and depression. Mm-hmm. So we, we, as a family, didn't really pay much attention to mental health. Uh, kind of back in an era wasn't when it wasn't really looked at as much. Uh, we've since kind of learned that oh maybe we should check out our our mental health just as much as our physical health, maybe more. You know? mm-hmm. um, but back then, you know, I, I didn't think anything of it. I thought, okay, this is just the, the situation I was born into. I could either you know cry about it and whine, or I could pull up my bootstraps and, and go to work and, and try and please this guy. Mm-hmm. Um, and at some point along this just journey, I think I was around 10 and it, and it had to come to a, a decision because I was still playing hockey at this point and I was traveling. I had the opportunity to travel and play much more higher level soccer. Mm-hmm. And it was just an issue with time management. Um, you know, I, I can't do both. I would love to do both, but you know, one, one's got to give. And so we kind of, both my parents sat me down one day and, and they mapped out the career paths of, of both sports. You know, you, you're very familiar with the hockey track. 
as we yeah. play for the Hitmen. You know, you could go and play midget AAA, and then you can potentially get drafted in the, a junior league and then go pro. And then they kind of, you know, broke down the likelihood of that. And then they took me through the soccer route of things and said, well, if you work hard and you play for men's teams and your club teams and you can go to university tryouts and then you can go overseas and there's just more, more opportunity just to keep playing, mm -hmm. not necessarily to play professional, but just to keep playing. And I kind of sat back in my you know, young brain and thought, well, A, I don't want to be like everybody else. I want to be a bit original. Mm -hmm. And B, well, hockey's a pretty, you know, fun sport. Soccer's a pretty fun sport too. But which one am I going to be able to play longer, I thought. Mm -hmm. And that week, I remember going out to the field and kicking the ball around with some of my dad's buddies. And some of his buddies got gray hair. Some have no hair. And they're still kicking a ball around, right? They're in their 70s. They're still running around like they're 25. So mm -hmm. that kind of influenced my decision as well. And from that point, I, I decided to go the soccer route instead of going to play hockey mm -hmm. and didn't look back since I haven't picked up a stick. I haven't skated just fun, all like, mm -hmm. you know, cousins and stuff. Yeah. Uh, but I was fully dedicated to soccer after this point. And that was around the fifth grade. And I can remember when I made the announcement to my friends that I was going to quit. And then they were all kind of scratching their heads. Like, dude, what are you talking about? We're only, only 11. Why are you quitting hockey now? <laughs> like, well, boys, like to kind of break this down. I got to travel a long way to go play a high level soccer. Mm -hmm. uh, the next closest place I could have gone to play soccer was in Thunder Bay, which is a six hour drive. Wow. So like major respect to my dad, he would take time off work and he would, drive me up on the Friday. We would drive six hours in the morning, have dinner, go to bed early. I would train Saturday and Sunday, and then we'd go home Sunday morning or Sunday afternoon and get home around five or six. And it was, it was a busy weekend, both for him and me, because he had to drive all over the place and I had to play. Yeah. Um, and I couldn't do that on top of playing, you know, double a triple a hockey it was just impossible um so i had to give that up unfortunately um and i remember my last tournament i played in a charity tournament with a couple of kids and and i played net actually when i was when i was playing and um well some of the kids might say i was pretty good not half bad and i think we were in the final game of the tournament and I made a glove save on a kid and play freezes. Ref picks up the puck. I'm getting ready to start the next play. And my dad's in the stands with all the other parents. And he didn't tell me the story until just last year, actually. And one of the parents had leaned over to him after me making this, you know, heroic glove <laughs> save. And he says, now you're going to let him quit hockey to play soccer. Are you out of your mind? <laughs> So just proven that my dad's not the only psycho sports parent out there. <laughs> but the fact that all these parents thought that it was my dad forcing me to quit and not my own choice. So clearly I wasn't seeing the whole picture. And after, after I made that decision to quit hockey, that's when I slowly started to see my life change for worse. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I went into the fifth grade and the way our school system worked, we were in a French immersion program. It was the only one that they had in town. And it was also a Catholic uh, school division. Mm-hmm. So basically you're with the same group of kids from age four until you graduate. Mm-hmm. So your, your class is literally your family. And I've known these people my entire life. You know, my one friend, Jonathan, that I mentioned earlier, I met him when we were newborns and we were, our mothers were in the same hospital at the exact same time. So we, we were friends since the womb, uh, up until the fifth grade. And then everything just started to change. I noticed I started to lose friends more frequently. Kids were bullying me a little more than they normally would. Um, you know, and I, I felt really ostracized in a sense. Like, I didn't think anything would change if I just gave up this one part of my life to pursue something else, but that clearly didn't happen. Everything changed. Little by little, I started to lose every single friend I had ever had, and I didn't know why. I thought it was because I quit hockey, and I started to blame myself then being, you know, in a environment where you're dealing with a hypercritical person at home Mm -hmm. i'm already going to develop those hypercritical attributes myself and just constantly going in every single day knowing that you're losing every friend little by little it is it is tough Mm -hmm. and you start to develop this sense of loneliness and and it just it found a way to consume me at a very early age. You know, I would, I would be fearful when the bell would ring for recess, knowing that I'm going to get picked on. Um, the bullying kept going. You know, I, I would come home every single day and I wouldn't tell my parents what had happened because I didn't want to draw that negative attention to me because A, I felt I was going to get judged by my father for not having any friends at school. And for being, you know, kind of a, a shy, introverted kid and, and be, I just want to burden anybody with my issues. I, I felt like, you know, well, I'm getting a good education. I, I know I'm going to have to leave this place at some point. For right now, I can, I can just deal with it. You know, I can just shove it down and have it not be an issue. I know that when I graduate, I'm never coming back here and I can live with that. So that, that little bit of negative hope kept me going. Um, it was just the day-to-day stuff that, that I had to find a way to get through. So what I would do on lunch break, because I knew I had no friends anymore to go sit with, I would go out, I'd bring my running shoes to school. And after third period or second period, whatever it was, I'd lace up my shoes and I'd go for a trail run. I would go back for or I would go out for 25 minutes, I'd check my watch, and then if it was time, I'd come back. And that association of, of running when you have no one or nothing else to do, running when you're lonely, running when you're sad, running when you're stressed, anxious, you know, depressed even, it, it really affects me now into today. I'll go out and run a 5k. I struggle to finish sometimes because these intrusive thoughts of being lonely and having no one and, and just being vulnerable, Mm -hmm. keep 
sparking up and it, and it, it's brutal to have to go through that every time you're just trying to go out and be fit and, and, and get some physical activity. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, middle, middle school and, and into high school that, that kept going for some time. And just to kind of go back to the sports aspect of it all, uh, this, uh, at this point, I wasn't going Thunder Bay as much anymore because we had looked into going into somewhere closer. Winnipeg's only a two-hour drive. It's where, you know, a lot of us like to do our Christmas shopping and go up and, and, and do a lot of our big spending. So it made more sense to go to Winnipeg as opposed to Thunder Bay. Mm-hmm. Two hours, only six. Two hours as opposed to six. So we got in contact with the right people and started going – to Winnipeg, you know, it started off once a weekend or once every weekend kind of thing, once a month. And then it kept piling on the workload, you know, lo and behold, I'm in the ninth grade. I'm going up to Winnipeg two, three times a week to go play soccer. And the, the schedule for that was, I think I would get off school about two 45, about a half an hour before everybody else. Uh, whoever my ride was majority of the time it was my dad, the other parts and my grandfather, my mom, they would drive straight to Winnipeg, get there around five o'clock, have a small bite to eat. Practice was usually about six, seven practice game, whatever it was, go play. You get in the car, you drive home. By that point, when you get home, it's about 12, one in the morning, shower, go to bed and then up for school the next day. And that just repeat. So having to do that constantly, uh, I'll admit it was fun. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed meeting new people. I enjoyed meeting people with the common interests as me. Uh, for the first time, I kind of felt like I wasn't really alone, which was nice. The only issue was I'd only see him for two hours and then I have to go back home. I wasn't living there. I, I wasn't involved with these people's lives outside of soccer i'd have to come home and and you know go to school the next day and basically sit in class with a bunch of strangers because they didn't know me and i barely knew them anymore um and in in that nine ten even grade eight age you know kids kids start partying a little more they start drinking they start you know, indulging in reckless behavior and having that strict father. Again, he had very strict morals, very strict sets of rules. And that fear still lived in me when I was 13. Mm -hmm. And basically he sits me down one day and he says, if I ever catch you drinking, partying, doing anything that you're not supposed to, I will find out and you will be punished. So hearing those words automatically, for me meant, okay, you can't go party at all. Even if you're there, you're guilty by association and your life will end. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, so right away, like on the weekends when I wasn't going to Winnipeg, I would be at home with my parents. I'd watch a movie. I, I play, you know, board games and card games. And I spent a lot of time at home and a big part of me would feel bad for myself I, I thought well why can't I be like every other ordinary kid and just go hang out with a friend on Saturday and not have it be a drink fest or why 
why am I being ostracized for not wanting to drink or because I can't drink mm -hmm. and everybody else can go out and enjoy their time. It, it felt like essentially it was only happening to me because I wasn't, because it kind of was only happening, you know, mm -hmm. every single person in my grade would go out and hang out on the weekends and I would, you know, pull out my phone and I would see it on social media. I'd see, Oh, so-and-so's with so-and-so. And it creates that fear of missing out when you see your friends that you had at a young age and you want to be involved, you want to be a part of something, you want that community, but you don't have it. And, and they're dangling it in front of your face. It feels like when they're not actually, they're not meaning to, mm -hmm. um, it's just adding gas to the fire and you go, you're sitting at home and you see this, and you go to bed at night and you try and not to let the negative emotions consume you. But I mean, how could you not at, at times like that when you feel like you're the only person in your world, when you feel guilty and, sh and shameful for trying to tell your parents, afraid to tell your parents even about your emotional distresses. Um, so there would be times when I would go home and I would go to bed and I would wait until everybody else was asleep. I would try and hold off those negative emotions until I knew everybody was sound asleep and wouldn't hear me. And then I just let it wail. I would spend hours in my room crying. And that, that takes a lot to admit because, you know, <laughs> being a varsity athlete and, and being a man in general, you know, men don't like to admit that they cry. Well, I'll be the first to say that I cry a shit ton. <laughs> And does that make me any less masculine? No, you know, it just, just means I'm a little more emotional and I like to wear my feelings a little more on my sleeves, which, you know, maybe that's what we need to kind of promote instead of, you know, shoving emotions down and neglecting them. Maybe we need to confront them and maybe confront's not the best word, but, you know, be more compassionate with them and, and treat them with more delicacy. Um, so basically that was my life growing up in a small town. You know, I, I spent a lot of my time to myself. I didn't really have too many people. I had my mom and maybe like one other friend in grade 11 was a bit of a turning point. I, um, I would play, I played lots of sports growing up, lots of high school sports, basketball, volleyball, um, soccer. And, and through playing those sports, I would kind of, try and latch on to some friends that way and lo and behold in the 10th grade it kind of worked you know I, I met some really nice guys on the basketball team and I I enjoyed you know going to practice every morning because I was getting better I could visibly see it you know we had a coach who was um, who knew a lot about just modern day basketball and and he taught me how to fix my shot he showed me all these things and I just fell in love with basketball at this point and and so did some of the other guys on the team and then through that love of basketball you know you start to gain camaraderie um and it felt nice for that short little season that we had but when the season ended well then season ended you know i never saw those guys hardly ever anymore and in grade 11 as well you know i that same kind of dynamic happened where you know you're friends with your teammates and you get along great and I actually managed to latch on to a friend 
for once. Um, his name is Liam. Uh, we're still friends to this day. He's, he's my best friend. And uh, through that, you know, he kind of kind of brought me out of my shell a little bit. Um, he made me feel wanted. He makes me feel secure. And, uh, and he's just all around good guy. Um, also, on top of that, I, um, I have, we actually haven't talked about this, uh, the whole girl situation. So as you can imagine, uh, growing up and being that shy little introvert, um, wasn't really getting anywhere with the ladies, as, <laughs> as you might imagine. You know, I was kind of just, you know, shy, you know, trying to make sure I got a hundred on all my tests because, uh, well, because of the tyrant dad that lived at home and because, you know, hundreds look good on resumes. Um, and at some point in the 11th grade, you know, I started to be a little less serious about school and sports. And I, I, I started to reach out and I um, was getting a little more luck and I actually ended up getting a girlfriend in the 11th grade. And uh, it was, it was very nice. You know, she, she kind of gave me a little safe haven to, to confide in her, my emotional vulnerabilities. And we were, we were good like that in a sense that we had each other's backs and we were receptive to one another's pain because she had stuff going on in her life too. Everybody does. And just having a person around that, you know, that you can tell things to and, and you'll, you're not going to get judged for it. You're not going to get you know, ostracized. It's, it's nice. Um, and then as, as the months went on and as the term kept going you know some some problems arose um not even necessarily with myself or her it was just the dynamic of the relationship our interests didn't really line up all that much um and we both had our own plan going forward for the following year her plan was to go overseas uh, for an exchange program and my plan well, we'll get to that now, actually. So in the 11th grade, I had decided that, well, it was a collective decision between me and my parents that, well, I, th I think I've had enough of Kenora. I, I, I don't really want to keep going at this, at this rate. You know, I, it's not the place for me. I feel, I still feel a little ostracized, you know, Liam's leaving next year. Um, I'm going to have no one again. And I'm trying to get to that next level of, of soccer. And it just kind of made sense because I was still doing the two, three times a week thing in Winnipeg. It just made sense to move there already. You know, I, I was going to be moving out the following year for university anyway. And what better way to learn independence than to get a jump start on everybody else? Mm -hmm. So that grade 11 year was also preparation for adulthood. And growing up with my father, I felt like he had be he had been preparing me for that my entire life. Um, you know, having his strict set of rules and and just really um, being who he is and and the morals that he holds. You know, he's preparing me for that next stage of life. Um, and when we had come to the decision that I was going to move to Winnipeg, he just dialed it up to nine. And uh, the way he went about 
me living on my own. It was like I had a drill sergeant following me around 24 seven. If I didn't wash a dish, if I didn't cut the grass, if the, if, if the gas tank was below half in the winter time, just, just little things that you have to either do his way or the wrong way. And having that constant, you know, hypercritical person in your life, wearing you down, making you feel like pure shit. It does not feel nice going to bed at night. And that was premium gasoline for kids. Kids see this because they know who my dad is, the small community. They can see what's going on, you know, outside of the home because he's involved. He's the coach of the high school soccer team. Um, and people would pick on me. They'd be like, hey, Aiden, how's your dad? How's drill sergeant? So-and-so. And it's just like, well, like, haha, funny joke. You don't have to live through it, you know? And it just, and I remember it, it reached another point, like what I mentioned when I was a kid, and that level of embarrassment. It, it happened again in high school. And I have a, a little short story here. So it's, like I'm in the 11th grade and we're playing a high school soccer game. Uh, it's a home game. And I believe this is, a buy-in game for provincials mm -hmm. so if we win we move on to the next kind of tournament in our in our season mm -hmm. and my dad's the bench boss and we have our high school science teacher who's the assistant mm -hmm. and games very close it's it's a tie game we're going into overtime and i'm i'm not having a great game per se um I'm, I'm still giving it my 100% effort and I'm trying to get everybody else involved. And, and, and my style of play really is a playmaker style. You know, I'm not a goal scorer. I'm not a defender. I like setting people up and I like contributing in the field of play. Mm -hmm. So I, I will play that kind of center mid defensive mid role um, for you soccer fanatics. You all know what that means. And as we're going into overtime, I, I walk over to the bench and I can just see the look on his face and everyone sees the look on his face. Mm -hmm. um, it's universal. You know, you don't have to speak to know when someone's pissed like that. Mm -hmm. um, and, and he takes a breath and gives the guys a motivational speech and tries to rah, rah the group. And, and we go back on the field and then within two minutes start yelling at me and he starts yelling at me for something I haven't done. And I'm scratching my head. I'm like, are we saying the same game? <laughs> <laughs> and, and it happened and, you know, play continues and, you know, and then it happens again. And he's shouting at me and shouting someone else's name. And I'm like, okay, I don't, he's not doing what I think he's doing. <laughs> yeah. He's yelling at other people through me and I'm, I'm getting frustrated and I'm pissed off now. I'm frustrated. I'm going in, I'm going, I, I, I reached that second gear somehow in overtime. We've already played however many minutes and I'm, I'm just running through guys and I'll never forget what 
my high school science teacher did in between overtime periods pulls me aside and he sees that my dad is is yelling quite aggressively on the sidelines everyone can see it um and what he did was he just pulled me off to the side and he says hey uh if he ever starts yelling at you again don't look at him look at me i'll tell you what to do don't focus on him it's not helping you it's not helping anybody you look at me and we'll go from there and sure enough, second half resumes and he starts, you know, barking his head off again. And I, I do what my science, I look at him and he just like, you're doing fine. He's nodding his head, you know, keep going. We're going to win this game. You're going to be fine. Mm-hmm. And that reassurance from an outside source, it gave me ease. It gave me some comfort in, in, a, in a pretty heated moment because I was full on embarrassed for my dad, for myself, as he's screaming and, and as everyone's seeing it to have, you know, someone who, who sees that and can say, Hey, don't look at him. Don't worry about this loud mouth. Just worry about yourself, worry about the team and we'll get through it. Mm-hmm. And that was a pretty magical moment and showed that I wasn't the only one seeing this. It, it, it represented that, you know, we all acknowledge that sometimes people are loud and people are aggressive and abusive. Mm-hmm. It's best not to feed that source. Just try and find ways to ignore it, counter it, counteract it any way you can. Um, and that was a pretty magical moment. I'll never forget that. And, and if H is ever going to listen to this, thank you for that. I, I appreciate it. Um, so now fast forward into to Winnipeg. We'll go over that quickly. Uh, I moved to Winnipeg when I was, oh, I was like 16 or 17. Um, and I moved in with my cousin who lived in kind of the southeast side of town. And he had a very uh, special job and still does and where he was required to travel a lot, maybe not so much anymore due to COVID, but before he was, he was going all over the globe. And so majority of the time I would be at home by myself, which I was no stranger to, you know, I, I had been alone ever since I was, you know, 10 years old at this point. So I knew what to do. I knew how this year was more or less going to go, you know, I was going to go to school. I was going to go to practice and I was going to go to bed because I had my schedule built in, in a way where I was always busy. You know, I would wake up in the morning, I'd have a, a small bite to eat. I would leave at about seven and I wouldn't get home until about nine. And I designed that in a way to keep myself busy because I knew what it was like to be lonely in that sense. And I didn't want that to happen again, especially being in a new setting when I didn't really know a whole lot of new people. Um, so yeah, I just tried to stay as busy as possible. Uh, and that first day in a new school, um, at this point, I'm, I'm still extremely shy and introverted. I, I told myself, you know what, just go on the first day. Just don't get lost in this, you know, labyrinth of a building. Make it to all your classes and then go home and just take a breather. That whole day, I can remember, I was, my hands were sweaty. I was, I was probably shaking 
the entire day. I was nervous, uh, overwhelmed, um, all the classic signs of anxiety. I, I, someone, someone could take a picture of me and caption it. It would just say anxiety. <laughs> so I'm going through my day and I'm in last period. And I think last period was chemistry. And as I'm leaving uh, to finish the day, I, I, I hear an announcement or something. And I was like, volleyball tryouts in the gym for senior boys in like 10 minutes. And I was like, well, I got my shoes in the car. <laughs> Screw it. Let's go. <laughs> I decided to kind of confront my anxiety in a way where I was like, you know what? You love playing sports. Maybe something good will come from it. And sure enough, I show up and I see a guy there that I played soccer with for quite some time. We had been on the same team for a few years and he was uh, talking with another one of his pals who is now one of my really good buddies. I'll mention him by name. His name is Tyler and Tyler to put this. Um, he's, he's a social butterfly. He knows everybody and everybody knows him. And, and he's, he's quite the source of entertainment when you really get to know him. He's, he, he's a, uh, He'd be the joker in the locker room. Mm -hmm. So I walk up to my buddy that I played soccer with and without even having to introduce Tyler, just instantly, hi, I'm Tyler. He's like, oh, <laughs> hi, oh, this is new. Hi, Maiden, nice to meet you. <laughs> and that whole practice tryout, whatever it was, um, Tyler just kept trying to pull information for me. You know, where are you from? What do you like? And all this stuff and then we kind of bonded over our love for for hockey and and sports in general and that was kind of the first sign of well, you know maybe things are going to be a little different here you know things things might change um and to this day me and tyler are still really good buddies um over the school year i didn't really get to see him as much uh he was busy with his own stuff mm -hmm. so so over the school year, I would see him somewhat frequently, but I was still pretty by myself. You could say I was, I was basically living in a house, maintaining it at 17 years old, mm -hmm. which is, is very strange to be in that setting. You know, you're, you're a kid still, and you're wondering, oh, okay, well, do I have to call a plumber to get the toilet checked out? Do, what do I have to do you know, to maintain this house? uh cable goes out oh well, i don't know how to fix a cable box i'm only 17 um how do i do this and it's just trying to work out the little kinks and, and, and reach that next part of adulthood and again you know growing up in that lonely setting it was it was hard to break the cycle i would go home come home from soccer or, or school some days and i i just sit and and do nothing i had homework to do sure I wouldn't do it. I, I would come home. I had soccer practice. I would go, I come home. I wouldn't shower. I wouldn't upkeep my daily hygiene. I just felt so, you know, exhausted and, and alone. And I felt like no one was looking after me except myself. Mm -hmm. And, and that's, that's, that's the unfortunate lesson that I kind of learned growing up is that I'm basically only responsible for me the only person that's going to take care of me is me and 
that negative self-talk it it just it started when i was 10 and it's just carried up until this day you know i i constantly put myself down i i will have these inner self conversations in a sense where you know i let's say i i get a test mark back and it's not what i would hope for it's not really that great and then there's that part of my subconscious that says oh you're you're not good enough you know you're not smart enough what are you doing wrong it's all your fault and then it just spirals from there um so being very self-critical definitely spawned from my relationship with my father um and it also just my genetics as well having that anxiety and having having that part of me that that is, that is self-critical all the time that wants to be perfect in a sense and i, I still didn't really fully understand what was going on mental health wise i, I kind of chose to to neglect it which is not what you want to do um but it's it's what I did do in time, and at at this point, I I had gotten through the year in Winnipeg. It was it was a it was a better year than it would have been at home, uh, but still wasn't fantastic. And this this now moves into the part of my life where I start university. So, um, in February, I had gone to a recruiting camp for the University of Saskatchewan in Saskatoon for the Huskies. And I, I liked their program. I liked what they were about. Uh, the coach, um, which we'll get into him a little bit, he he had pretty much convinced me that this was a, a pretty stand-up program and that uh, this was kind of a place for me. And I had done some pretty hard thinking and thought, hey, no, I think I'm going to go to the U of S. It's nice and close to my parents if they want to come visit. Um, it's kind of the perfect little university town if you've ever been to Saskatoon. It's not too big. It's not too small. Um, winters there, you know, they're the exact same winters I would get in Kenora already. So no, no change there. And I met some pretty nice people on the team when I went. So that, that was also another big selling point. Mm-hmm. Um, so here I am. I'm, I'm fresh out of high school and I'm playing varsity soccer for university. And it's a whole new experience and it's a fresh start in a sense. Um, the only difference in my story is that I've kind of been more independent than all the other kids had been up until this point. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I, going in, I kept telling myself, okay, let's not have it be a repeat of Kenora. Let's not have it be a repeat of Winnipeg. Let's, let's challenge your, your anxiety a little bit which I didn't know was anxiety at the time. I was like, let's just challenge this shy part of yourself and, and just be a little outgoing and, and see where that gets you. Um, and, and as it would happen naturally, you know, I do end up meeting a great, fantastic group of people, um, met lots of, you know, great friends and, and still have them to this day. Um, only difference now is I, now that I have this group, I was willing to do just about anything to keep them. So whatever that meant, I was going to do. You guys are going out to a party. Yeah, I'm there. You guys want to go out drinking? Yeah, I'm there. And it just kept dominoing in that sense that I didn't really have any self-respect for myself. And I was going to do anything for acceptance. You know, I wanted to be a part of a friend group so bad. 
because I had never been a part of one before and just doing the things that I was doing. Um, I didn't really uh, have any sort of stopper switch. I, you know, I was, I was going out almost every weekend, uh, sometimes, you know, two, three times a weekend drinking and partying and my grades were suffering because of it and anything nothing of it at the time uh because i was still you know doing i was still passing um i was like you know what i'm doing all right you know i got a couple i got friends i'm having the time of my life you know things are going great you know girls are finally starting to notice me you know i'm getting some winks and some, some, some <laughs> phone numbers and it's all working out as it should um and then another thought crossed my mind. I was like, is this what I had to do in the first place to get this type of acceptance? Did I have to go out and, and act like this from the get-go? Um, and that, that brought on a different set of depressive episodes and anxieties. It made me feel like I wasn't myself. You know, I would, I would go out and, and do these things on the weekend and, and then I would, you know, come back on on Sunday and, and look myself in the mirror and I think, well, that wasn't really what you would do at all if it was unprompted. Mm -hmm. you know, you're doing these things to gain people's approval when you're not even recognizing who you are in the mirror. Mm -hmm. And it was just, it was a strange feeling. It felt like imposter syndrome in a sense. I didn't actually know what I liked, what I disliked, what I wanted to do with my life. I was just, you know, people pleasing in a sense. And I was just trying to be a social butterfly. Like, you know, I'd seen time and time again, you know, social butterflies are, are you know, they're accepted. They, they, they're loved by everybody. So if I can be like that, maybe I'll get some attention and, and maybe I won't be as lonely this time around. Mm. And, and another aspect of that was, is that I felt like I had to be perfect in a sense to, to be accepted. So every little thing I did, I make sure to do with perfection because I knew growing up with my father that if it wasn't perfect, it wasn't good enough. Mm -hmm. So I took that same mentality into the, now friend that I had and tried to make my life now as perfect as could be. And if nothing was a hundred percent, then it destroyed me. You know, I got upset. I got angry. I got irritated. And, and this, this had been going on in high school too. You know, I would, I would be playing sports and I would be, I would be negative all the time because all I was hearing at home was this negative talk and behavior. You know, I was irritated because a certain someone at home was irritated and it just kept going. And then when I was out on my own, it, it, it didn't end there. You know, that fear of, of failure, you don't want to happen. And when it happens, it feels like the world is ending mm -hmm. and, and only perfectionists like myself can really understand that, you know, and it's, it's kind of tough to, to tell someone that, that 
that wants to be perfect all the time. Oh, hey, it's okay. You know, we all make mistakes. Um, but it's, it's, it's one of those things that I've had to work on constantly and, and, and try not to be as, as perfect or try to be, try to be human in a sense, just understand that I am human and that I'm allowed to, to make mistakes and I'm allowed to, to not be perfect sometimes mm-hmm. trying to kind of retrain my brain that way. Um, and then that, that perfectionist mentality it's slowly more manageable but at the time with the friend group and with and with soccer on top of that it was it was constant because my coach at the time he was also as you could say a perfectionist he wanted things to be perfect all the time you know he wanted you to be essentially robotic in what you did you should be able to repeat this 100 times out of 100 you know it, it is my way or the highway and slowly over the course of my first year i started to notice that this 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 man is a lot like another another guy in my life there are some similarities and and lo and behold you know the the man that my coach portrayed in that identification camp it it wasn't his real self he was putting on kind of a, a mask you know because in in the weeks of training camp he was that same person he was you know um excited and organized respected you could say uh but that respect it it came out of fear and you could see that right from our captain all the way down to our red shirts Mm -hmm. and if if you have a man in charge or a woman that that runs off of fear it's it's a horrible system to be a part of because you walk into to the locker room every day and you're just hoping oh man i hope he doesn't yell at us for something dumb today oh i hope he doesn't make us do sprints oh and did we have all like you're just making sure that every little thing is done perfectly so he has nothing to catch you on and it was it was strange too because he would also find ways to maybe not full-on bully but make fun and pick fun with certain guys about certain parts of their life. And to me, that just seems like the complete wrong way to go about coaching. Mm -hmm. You know, a coach is supposed to be a motivator. It's supposed to be someone who you can, you can look to for inspiration, who you can have these types of conversations with. Mm -hmm. When that wasn't the case, you know, everybody in that locker room knew that if you screwed up, it was going to be made public and you were going to be embarrassed. And I just, again, thought, you know what? I've been dealing with it my whole life. I can deal with it a little more. It'll be okay. And, and in my first year, I just kind of buried my head and worked hard. And I got, I got the playing time that, uh, well, that I thought I deserved. You know, I got good minutes for being in my first year, which was, which was really nice. Um, then I came into my second year and, and something had, had changed, you know, um, in the way of his coaching, maybe in the way I was playing. Um, and for whatever reason, I, I didn't get the, the same time, but yet I still felt like I was at that same level. And, and again, I mentioned kind of the bullying. Neglect is a, is a form of bullying. 
in my opinion. And, and what he would do is he would play favorites as, as some coaches do. He would take kind of the starting group of what you would call like the starting 14 or 15 guys and take them on one side of the field. And then he would take the rest of us and kind of shove us off with the assistant coaches. And it would almost be like two separate teams in that sense. And he, he would just, some of the strategies that he would pull in practice, it was very strange and it didn't really make a lot of sense to me and started to mess with my mental health too, because at one, you know, in my mind, I'm working my ass off. I'm trying to you know, show that I'm starting material and, mm. and guys around me are seeing that I, that I could be, or that I am when in fact it's, it's not happening. And it's just, it, it was a strange setup in that second year. I really started to see him for who he really was. Um, one little story I'll share is that, well, our season normally goes from August until November. So, so you could say right around now would be our off season. Mm-hmm. and typically what happens after season's done might have one or two more weeks of training and then uh, be done with it um, we go write our finals and then we come back in the new year and and regroup then um, what didn't make sense to me was his plan of action so our season ends uh, right before reading break and I'm home for reading break. I'm helping my dad with some construction around the house. We get an email and the email reads, uh, we will be doing fitness testing on such and such dates with where before finals, which you know, didn't make a difference to anybody. We're like, all right, fitness testing is what it is. And then we're going to have, and this is the part that kind of tripped me up a little bit. He said, he sent out a list of players and the players were essentially all the red shirts and all the subs from the season that just passed. And what he said was, we're going to take this group of guys and we're going to put them through a series of training just to keep touches on the ball. And those sessions ran through into finals. So to put this bluntly, he basically said starters, you know, take a break, take exams, get A's, relax. And then he said to the subs, well, hang on, you're not done yet. You still got to train. I don't care if you have finals, you got to come. And I remember my exam schedule that year, I had something like back to back to back finals. And I sent him a text. I said, you know, coach, I can't make it. I have back to back to back finals. I got to study. And and the oh man, the text that I get back, it just enraged me. I, and it's like, with proper time management, you can make it to the practice. And I was like, <laughs> excuse me? <laughs> You're going to find a way to, to make me feel guilty about this? <laughs> no, sorry. And that was when I was kind of reaching my end with this, with this man, with this coach. I didn't like his, I didn't like who he was as a person anymore. I did not have any respect for him. And I saw that he kind of resembled, you know, every single bully I've had in my life, Um, whether it was the kids at school, whether it was my father, whoever it came from, he kind of was, you know, that, that bigger boss in the sense that I know what I have to do now. I am just trying to find the courage to do it. 
mm-hmm. and in terms of how the way I went about it, you know, I, 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 I think it was a pretty good one in the sense that I went in, we did had our fitness testing in the new year. Um, I remember I got a very good score on whatever testing we did. And then the next day I walked into his office and I just said, I I'm done. I quit. I don't want to play for you anymore. And I remember before going into that meeting, my hands were shaking. <laughs> my, my whole body was shaking. I was doing laps around the arena, trying to calm myself down, just trying to breathe and be like, all right, just get those two words out. I quit. That's all you got to say. And then you get to leave and it's done. Uh, and then finally, I, I, I go in the meeting, I say those words, and it was like the biggest weight had been lifted from my shoulders. It was like I finally confronted, you know, years of trauma in a sense um and and that was a small little victory for me at that time and it made me feel really good about myself um and then after i made that choice i kind of had two options um i could have either stayed in saskatoon and not played soccer just gone to school or i could have transferred and continue to play soccer and just pick up my degree somewhere else. Um, it was kind of a no-brainer that I wanted to keep playing. Um, I'm a pretty active person. I like sports. Um, and I got on the horn with my dad and I just said, yeah, no, I want to keep playing. Um, and he said, well, where, where would you go realistically? And I said, well, I did look at going to Victoria when I was younger. I just never did anything about it. I mm-hmm. uh, kind of wanted to stay closer to home just so my parents could be, could have that access to me. But now uh, I'm, I'm kind of ready just to, to do what's best for me. And I decided to come out to uh, University of Victoria, reached out to Bruce Wilson, our coach here. He said, come on out for a weekend. Uh, we'll have you go through a series of practices and um, came, trained with the team. Uh, I liked what I saw and decided, hey, this, this might be the next place for me and put in my transfer. And, and then the following uh, fall, I was out here in, in Victoria. And I was, again, nervous. For, for the change up because this is this is now fourth place I will have lived and I had just turned 20 and it was kind of a daunting feeling knowing that I had had a better friend group in my second year at the University of Saskatoon and I, I, part of me wanted to stay because of friends and I was like, oh man like this is the first time in your life that you've had a sense of community and 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 now you're gonna throw it away well and then I, i'm like trying to gain advice from every single person that i can i'm on and my mom just says hey you know you can make friends anywhere right <sighs> yeah yeah you make a point <laughs> so <laughs> moms are always right <laughs> moms are always right man are they wise um so yeah it, that definitely helped me to to get over that hump and, and to to transfer out to Victoria and 
I knew kind of the rules coming in to transfer. So with university soccer and university sports, it's a bit delicate whenever you transfer uh, between the same league. So we're U sports. Um, whenever you, you transfer to a different school, you have to sit out a full year of eligibility. Mm-hmm. So, so last year was my red shirt season and I knew it going in. I knew it just meant, you know, practice with the team. Um, just be, you know, as positive as you can when you go through it. And maybe some good will come out of it. And sure enough, a lot of good did come out of it. You know, I didn't, I didn't feel as stressed trying to, to break into a new lineup. I could just show up to practice, give it my all, and just try and, you know, get to know the guys a little bit more. And, and through doing that, I, 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 actually ended up becoming friends I became brothers with these guys and, and these guys are fantastic I love every single one of them to bits even though it may not seem like it at times um, I do you know these guys are my family they're they're phenomenal and and during that red shirt year you know there's a lot of a lot of good lessons sometimes you got to be a little patient for for what you really want in life uh, and it wasn't like I wasn't playing any games, you know, I was playing men's league here in, in Victoria and, and things were going well, you know, um, right up until about Halloween. Um, I was playing in a game and I gone up for a header and I had my bell rung uh, the wrong way and thought nothing of it. Again, same old Aiden, just neglecting all of his health issues. Uh, kept playing, played the whole or, or played up until the point where I got subbed around the 80th minute and, you know, went into the locker room, changed, hopped in my car, drove home, thought nothing of it. It was Thanksgiving weekend too. I'm pretty sure. Uh, not Halloween. So correct that. And I remember driving home from the game and it was almost like the road was it was almost like I was driving in Mario Kart. It felt like a video game is all I got to say. I was like, oh, this is weird. This is good, but it's probably nothing. Sure enough, I go over to Vancouver that weekend for Thanksgiving. Uh, one of my teammates had had me over to his place. And we were, you know, having some wine, having having a nice meal. Mm-hmm. And and as I'm sipping the wine, whoa, this, this really doesn't feel great. Uh and thought again thought nothing of it i just thought oh you know what you know we're drinking that makes sense it's alcohol it's gonna do that (laughs) um and just kept going about my weekend Uh, we got back to victoria on monday i I went to the gym tuesday and uh being a varsity athlete you know you're working out a fair bit and and i had been working out regularly at that point and i go to lift um i'm going to do my lifts first thing in the morning and I couldn't have been one set into my first exercise. And within 10 seconds, my brain got super fuzzy, cloudy. I lost vision. I, I didn't know what was going on. And right away, I get on uh, the phone with our physio. Say, hey, I, got I think I might have a concussion. Uh, can you come check me out? Mm-hmm. And sure enough, they're like, yeah, just stop by uh, within the next hour. Sure enough. Yeah. You have a, 
a moderate concussion um, and you need to take some time away from school and soccer. Uh, I just thought would now be a bad time to tell you that I drank over the weekend <laughs> as well <laughs> because I know they tell you not to do that when you get concussions but I didn't know because I, I was being that same kind of naive kid that thought oh I'm invincible and, and nothing bad can happen to me but it turns out that something sometimes bad stuff can occur and uh, you definitely want to take it serious with any type of injury but especially a brain injury because uh, you only get one brain and you got to take care of it and as you you you've had concussions in the past right yeah. and you, you know the process you know you got to sit in that dark room for however long they tell you to for me it was uh in 10 days mm -hmm. and you you just start to go a little crazy um but it, it was necessary for healing in a sense and i remember coming back after those 10 days and trying to learn different you know well i had to basically retrain my brain on on how to learn things you know reading was more difficult now doing school is more difficult now it's still more difficult i've i've had to basically re teach myself all my new learning techniques and it's tricky trying to get your brain around that another thing i learned from the concussion was that it probably wasn't my first one in the sense that I've had my my head hit like that in the past and and had those same symptoms but never got it checked out so mm -hmm. while this was my first legitimate concussion I probably had about three or four mm -hmm. which isn't which is not good to 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 have that information and, and to tell people that but uh it is what it is and when when I was concussed it, it got tough I did I did start to experience a bit of struggles with my mental health, um, specifically uh, with the anxiety and depression. You know, I, I started to feel really down about what was going on. I, I was already trying to keep myself positive and keep myself away from that dark place. Mm -hmm. Not able to play that season. Now I really can't do anything. And my head and my heart just sunk. I, you know, I was, I was spending my days in the dark. I was feeling sorry for myself. I, I didn't want any help from anybody. I basically went into my room and I stayed there and I didn't let anybody in. I, I withdrew socially because I didn't want to see anybody see me this week and, and see me this vulnerable. And for me, it was, it was a point of pride always, you know, I'd done this in, in middle school, high school, university. I've always worn a mask in a sense. I've always tried to hide that part of me that's vulnerable, that's sad, that's depressed and mask it with some, you know, just, just different version of myself. Maybe it's overconfident. Maybe it's just, you know, neutral, but I tried everything in my power to not let people see that I was struggling, mm -hmm. which I recognize now is not what you should do. Um, but, you know, it, it kept going with the concussions and then and it kept going after the concussions. And it was just silic, you know, whatever, whatever it was in my life, whether it was dealing with a, a bully of a father, whether it was dealing with a, 
bullies in general, the kids at school, whether it was dealing with coaches, injuries, um, school marks. I was trying to shelter myself mm-hmm. from what was actually going on. And I tried to shelter other people from what was actually going on. I tried to kind of create this facade in the sense that, oh, this guy's, this guy's really got his life together, you know, he's in the you know, pretty high level of education. He's taking a tough degree. He's on a varsity team. He works out, you know, they don't really see what goes on behind closed doors. They don't see the emotionally vulnerable kid that goes to bed weeping every night. They don't see the not so confident person that has to look himself in the mirror every day and tell himself that, you know what, you're doing your best. You keep going. They just, they, they see what I try. They see the mask that I wear. They see that more confident side of me. And, and it's tough trying to wear that mask all the time. Um, And the last little, um, part of my story here involves involves a girl uh so as i mentioned i had i had had a fair bit of bad luck with uh, girls in middle school and high school and then my luck was turning around in university and and at this point i had had uh dated some pretty numerous girls nothing that really stuck though it was mostly just uh just uh little things you could call them uh nothing really, as I said, nothing really stuck until, <coughs> excuse me, just um, this spring uh, during the pandemic, ironically, I, I ended up getting introduced to a girl um, through one of my teammates. Um, <coughs> ooh, sorry. And um, we just started talking, you know, we were both in quarantine, everybody was in quarantine. And, well, what are you going to do? We got nothing better to do with our time. No one's working. Might as well, you know, text and FaceTime and get to know a complete stranger. And, and that was, that was nice. You know, it made me feel a little less, less lonely. I was living, still living in Victoria. I, I was on the brink of going home. I decided not to, because I knew that my situation back home was not going to be any different than it was in Victoria, you know, I was still going to be, you know, isolated in my home. So I thought, eh, might as well stay somewhere that I know I'm, I'm going to like it. I'm going to appreciate it more. Um, and that kind of opened the door for us to start seeing each other uh, more frequently once restrictions were kind of lifted. And, um, and, and once we could actually go outside and, and not be as socially distanced. We got to see each other a fair bit more, um, and I had never I had never really been in love before. Um, I was kind of safeguarding myself from that a little bit because I I wanted to I wanted it to really mean something in the long run, and and sure enough, I I think it did with this one. You know, I I I'm pretty glad to say that she was my first love uh, regardless of how things might have gone in the end um you know what uh i gotta look at the bigger picture and be thankful that it, that it happened um but uh 
kind of go on with that story we were we were in the honeymoon phase right you know everything's perfect and everything nothing can go wrong right it's just kids being kids and she uh she taught me a lot mainly about health uh, which was important because i had mentioned i had kind of been neglecting my own for a fair bit i uh been neglecting a lot of the trauma with with my father and in grade school a lot of trauma that i had developed in university uh, with with my coaches or coach, I guess, and with my concussions as well. And there was a lot of, a lot of trapped emotions, you could say. I wouldn't really tell a lot of people about this. You know, I might tell maybe like three or four people ever. I, I didn't, at this point, I didn't, still didn't tell my parents what was going on. Um, and after, after seeing this girl and, and her kind of opening up my, my worldview to the fact that, you know what, mental health is pretty important. And, and now that I think about it, I have a lot of, of stuff that I could go and get looked at and, and, and treated for in a sense. And I, I was kind of scared to do that at first. I, um, I wasn't really sure what it would all mean if there was anything at all to really talk about. Um, but sure enough, there was. And, and I'm, I'm pretty thankful that she kind of opened my mind up to that idea of, of going to counseling and going to therapy. Um, it, it has really helped me in the long run. Um, it was just kind of unfortunate in the sense that I had told her that I was going to start going to counseling, that I was, I was looking for a counselor. Mm -hmm. And to my complete shock, um, she ended up ending things about a week after I had told her that I was going to counseling. Um, which was really hard for me to digest. You know, I, I thought this was the, I thought this relationship was really going to stick. You know, I don't just go around giving um, my, my heart away to everybody. Um, and I felt this one really, really meant something, but uh, it, it didn't. And, and it's unfortunate. And, and the way things ended in the aftermath of it all was even worse. And I won't go into that because uh, we'll keep that private. But uh, it was really hard to kind of to deal with the fact that, that a person could display, a, could, just, could show themselves in one light and then turn the light and, and show themselves in a different way mm -hmm. entirely. And uh, it made me question a lot about relationships, about, about her, about people. And, it, and it's just really kind of, um, I've been struggling to, to wrap my brain around that, but I had other struggles going on at that time as well. Yeah, I was heartbroken, um, and to be totally truthful, still kind of am, but um, I had other traumas that I had to, to, to deal with in the sense I had all these things in my past that I felt needed attending to. And, well... <laughs> make a joke what's one more right <laughs> um might as well chalk up heartbreak on that list and so i finally started going 
to, to counseling. I, I was going and doing uh, EDMR therapy mm-hmm. and I wasn't really sure what it would lead to. Um, again, I was, I was so nervous going in. I, I thought I was, I was downplaying all my, all my symptoms and emotions in the sense that, oh, you know, it's not a big deal. I can just, you know, deal with this on my own. Like I always have. And because of that heartbreak, because of what was going on, because I legitimately felt like death, I, I had to go reach out. I needed to talk to somebody because I was afraid of what would happen if I didn't. Mm-hmm. And I am so thankful that I finally had reached out to a counselor because now through this brand of therapy, it's helped me realize what had actually been going on for all these years. And I got a short list of of what had been going on. So as I mentioned, my family was predisposed for GADs, general anxiety disorder, and some depression on top of that. So I going through counseling, realizing that I am no stranger to anxiety and that it's actually developed into a form of high functioning society. So the symptoms that come with that are, you know, stress, tension, self doubts, um, nerves, irritability. Uh, I constantly feel overwhelmed. Um, I feel uneasy when, when things get you know hard and stressful. Um, I will feel fatigued a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. And, and then with the high functioning anxiety comes, it's kind of a two-sided coin. Um, there's there's good aspects to it but there's also bad so we'll start with the good um you know someone who has high functioning anxiety you know is is pretty high achieving they're they're proactive and social uh they can appear calm and confident in social settings um always meet my deadlines and i am very hard working which are very good attributes to have then you look at the flip side of it and it's it's the need to constantly be perfect that perfectionist aspect um the fear of failure i'm constantly self-critical uh i have intrusive thoughts all the time and and it's a give and take because you love these these primary attributes you know the hardworking and the aspect you know people love to see that i love to have that too um but having to deal with that side B, um, it can be tricky at times. And just not knowing what was going on, I think, was the, the toughest part as well. I just I didn't really know at all what I was feeling. But when you go to counseling and you have someone break it down in the sense of, oh, you're feeling this, this, and this because of X, Y, Z, well, now it makes a little more sense. And you can go on about your regular routine. And then because of what had happened in my past with all the mental abuse and the neglect and the bullying, it developed, you know, I had constant nightmares and, and I get insomnia. I, I mentioned that aggression that I, that I have and still kind of have. Um, and that feeling of always being in a state of hypervigilance, you know, always feeling on edge and restless 
that has to do with PTSD. And when I heard the words PTSD for the first time coming out of my counselor's mouth, I thought, well, I've never been to war. Yeah. And then I, th and then I thought again, well, hang on, maybe, maybe I have, you know, maybe I, maybe it's not as formal as what I'm thinking. Maybe it's just an internal battle between myself and, and, and what my reality was mm -hmm. in a sense. And, and it was, it was kind of strange to, to hear that and, and to really fully accept that. But once I had, it, it, it took me somewhere that I will be forever grateful for now. Uh, now that I know kind of what's going on in my brain, I can, you know, confront it with compassion and, and I don't have to be as, as lonely as I was all those years. Mm -hmm. um, I have reached out to various amounts of people, you know, whether they be health professionals or not, you know, just talking to someone can mean so much. And, and, and that's kind of the message I want to get across is that you don't have to go through this alone. Mm -hmm. You can reach out to someone, anyone. And that was the biggest barrier I had to break was to tell my parents what was finally going on. You know, I, I was on the phone probably close to four hours with both of my parents, just having, having a, a heart to heart with my mom and dad telling them that I, you know, I've been feeling terrible, you know, you know, like, the traumas that had gone on, the, the things that I had to deal with on both sides of uh, everything, essentially, you know, from Kenora to Winnipeg, Saskatoon to Victoria, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of stuff had happened in that time. And, and I kept it trapped deep down. Um, and, and now I'm just kind of finally uh, letting it all fly, which is, which is, it's, it's changed my life. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. That is that was I honestly I don't think you understand, but I feel like you just told my whole entire story in a nutshell. <laughs> <laughs> no, like you would say one thing and I was like, Oh yeah, I've had that. And then you say another thing mm -hmm. and I'm like, Oh my gosh, that happened to me as well. And then you just keep going and I was like you're just taking the words right out of my mouth and telling my story. Like I, and, and <laughs> I'll be honest, Lucas, like that was kind of my time. I heard your story. And, wow. I got a lot in common with them. This is weird. Yeah. Like you were talking about, um, well, even just at a young age, having to pick between sports, like I used to play really competitive soccer. So like, I know, boy. I, yeah, so you just like, went opposite. All. That's all it was. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> That's the only difference. And, like my dad used to, my dad used to coach me as well. And, um, same thing, like you would have your coach telling you one thing, you'd come home and you'd have a different thing being told to you, just yeah. everything working up and choosing your paths, seeing, like feeling lonely, like, and even the, the biggest one. And I think I touched on it a lot in my podcast, but how you talked about at lunchtime, you'd go for runs. And mm -hmm. for me, I would go for runs like after school as use that as a coping mechanism. Cause I was like, I can't sit at home. I'm going to lose my mind. So then I'd go for runs, but at school I would do like 
oh my gosh there is one there was one year where i i literally would walk out to the field and i remember i climbed a tree like every day for because there's trees at my school and i would climb a tree every day for like two weeks and i was like what are you doing like this is insane but oh, it's just like Oh, funny you mentioned that there was actually a forest behind our, our school and I used to run through the forest and if you ran far enough, there was a beach and sure enough, you know, reach the beach, take my shoes off, go for a little swim and start <laughs> back. Was, was good yeah, wow. I, like, I just, I can't believe how, like how much I actually relate to you and your story and just everything and even the way, um, for instance, with like just this recent girlfriend that you had and just the way that you take that and the way that you've moved um, forward from that and how you've kind of learned from that. It's the same thing with myself and I'm like, yeah, relationships, but as well as, um, or I guess significant other relationships and then just relationships in general and kind of what you take from those relationships and just learning how to cope with certain things and learning um, or basically learning that it is a learning curve and that it's a teacher and it'll it'll help benefit your future and teaches you what you want in life and what you might not want in life and teaches you that life is hard and it doesn't always come with sunshine and rainbows and it's just the harsh reality of it yeah that is true and we mentioned uh well i mentioned a little while ago that uh moms moms are wise and you said that too yeah and i've and she says this a lot. You can learn something from every single person that's in your life. It may not be something that you want to learn necessarily, yeah. but uh, there's definitely something there. And, and me being, you know, this, this, this type of guy that overthinks a lot and, and just really likes to find the meaning in all things. Um, this, this was a big one in the sense that trying to wrap my brain around the events that had happened, why they happened, and, and moving forward with my life. You know, people will come and go and relationships will do the same. Uh, the only person that never leaves you is you. So best to learn to get along with them. Yeah, no, yeah. I totally agree. Um, one, a couple of little things before we wrap it up, but what is, uh, what would be kind of your biggest tip of advice for somebody that does struggle or will struggle with mental health in their life? So I kind of got two bits of advice uh the first one as i mentioned before uh don't go through it alone mm -hmm. find someone reach out do everything you can to engage in the community because i found that when i was silent i was muzzling myself in a sense and i i wasn't doing myself any good and and finally this summer when i did reach out i had outpours of of you know, responses and, and people that were genuinely there for me. Yeah. Um, it's a long list of people, so I won't go through it. Um, <laughs> but I just want to say thank you to every single person who's, who's, who's touched me and, and, and made me feel like I belong. Mm -hmm. It made me feel a little less lonely. So, so thank you for that. And then the other bit of advice I'd like to offer is, uh, well, for me anyway, I know this works, but, um, acknowledging how you feel and not shying away from your insecurities. Um, oftentimes, and we do live kind of in an era 
we're just coming from an era where you know men are tough men don't have any weakness and and i i think you are doing a good job i think you know the girls over at uh well fuck yeah let's talk about it they're doing a great job of kind of breaking that narrative and and showing that it's okay to be emotionally vulnerable it's okay to have feelings and be a guy Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what I want to get at too, is that if you're feeling like, if you're, if you have these feelings of vulnerability, if you're feeling nervous, you're feeling suicidal, don't let that go ignored, please, please acknowledge it. And then share it with somebody yeah. and things can only get better. Yeah, exactly. No, it's mm-hmm. so true. I know for myself and I always say this, but the best thing that I ever did was take that first step and reach out and talk to people. And now it's every single day I have dozens of conversations with people at the most vulnerable state of myself being, and then with them being the most vulnerable um, that they are. And it's, yeah, it, it, it changes your life. Like when you do it, and I'm sure you can speak on this behalf as well, but when you actually have these deep vulnerable conversations and you get to know somebody on a personal level that, not very many people get to see it is like it just absolutely changes your life and it allows you to connect with somebody on a totally different level and it allows you to actually learn about someone and see what they're actually like Like you're not you're not seeing them say at a party because you have maybe they have this big face front on them and they Mm -hmm. are trying to be somebody that they're essentially not and then when you're actually having these vulnerable conversations with them, you see who they are and what they're actually like and what their morals are that they have and kind of what passions they have as well and what they're trying to pursue in life. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the last thing before we, or I guess kind of the last thing, (laughs) what is, uh, what's one quote that you have either has shaped your life or you kind of run your life off of? Um, so this is actually pretty cool and I'll, I'll give a little backstory to this. Mm-hmm. So, um, so again, with my father and his morals, he was, uh, and still is pretty keen on tattoos, specifically not getting them. <laughs> he was, he was a very big stickler on if you get a tattoo, I think, <laughs> yeah, no, he was just not a fan in the first place. And, and I told myself for a while, yeah, all right. No, don't need tattoos. Don't want them. I'm good. And then little by little, you start, you know, meeting different people. Like, oh, I kind of like that. That's a cool idea. Where'd you get that idea from? What does this mean? You know, you, you start to find the meaning behind the ink. Mm-hmm. And this summer when I was on the phone with him, I, I, I took a kind of big step. I had never really confronted my dad in, in a way that I have like this before. I never told him not told him off, but, but told him selfishly the way that I want to do things. Mm-hmm. I told my dad, Hey, look, I want to get a tattoo. I know you're against it, mm-hmm. but it's not your life. It's mine. And I'm going to do what I want to do with it. Mm-hmm. And I think that kind of uh, it, it changed our relationship for better. He, he saw me in a different way. He, he almost respected me a little more. It was a rite of passage with him to, to not 
you know, be Bill Taylor's son, but Aiden Taylor. It was a big moving point. So the quote I have is actually tattooed right here on my wrist. It says, you are enough. And I, I see it every day. I look down at it if I'm ever feeling blue. Mm -hmm. I just look, well, there it is. It resets my brain. Yeah, I love that. And I love that you got it tattooed on you. And because obviously it speaks to you and it speaks like it allows you to, again, just be vulnerable, but be strong and just proves that like you are enough and just that constant reminder. And I know that like, I have multiple tattoos oh, and they're, they're everywhere. And, <laughs> um, and I have, but I do have some like I have some that are random fun, but they have good stories behind them. And then I have others that are super meaningful. And I know that I have like, I have a couple quotes that are on my body as well. And some are simple, like some are simple and some are a little more complex, but I like to read them and I like to look at them and have that constant reminder. And cause I think it, it almost allows you to take a deep breath and relax and just realize that like, yeah, like, everything's okay and you get these constant reminders when they're on your body and it's just I don't know it's a it's a different feeling and obviously it means a lot when they're on you so oh yeah it is totally different and, and that that feeling of going and having the needle puncture your skin it's it's something else entirely mm -hmm. um and it's addicting you gotta watch out I mean I got <laughs> yeah now and I've only got my first one a few months ago so I better slow down yeah exactly <laughs> out of control seriously um mm -hmm. if uh if somebody does want to reach out to you and kind of have some vulnerable conversations or just show you the support that you 100 percent deserve where uh where could they find you uh well they can locate me a couple different places uh you can check out my instagram handle that's aiden jack taylor mm -hmm. uh you could shoot me a text at 807-464-3956 uh, and not that I check it regularly, but email is also good too. And that's Aiden Taylor 17 at hotmail.ca. Awesome. Yeah. Well, I know that you will 100% have people reaching out and personally, like from the bottom of my heart, like I can't thank you enough for, for coming on and sharing my own story. That's what it felt like. <laughs> but no, I like your, your story is awesome. And, um, just the fact that you, reached out and were willing to come on the podcast. Uh, I know that like a lot of people are going to kind of learn more about themselves through your podcast and kind of learn what they have to do and relate. And I know that a lot of people will relate. Um, but yeah, no, I hope that the, I hope that your team listens to it. I hope that uh, everyone in Victoria can listen as well. And I hope everyone remembers about uh, Vikes Kick Cancer as well. And um, yeah, again, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It was, it was really fun. And I, yeah, I'm just very thankful. Oh, Lucas, you got a phenomenal platform here. So keep, keep going and I'll be sure to, to send lots of people your way. You're doing a great service here. And, and thank you very much. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. It was, it was awesome talking to you and uh, I'm sure we'll connect real connect really soon again. All right. Good chat, Paul. Okay. Take care. Talk to you later. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Struggle Create Strength. I hope everyone enjoyed Aiden's story and I encourage you to reach out and have some vulnerable conversations with him. 
If you want to reach me or come on the podcast, you're more than welcome to at Struggle Create Strength on both Instagram and Facebook, or you can also reach me on my website at strugglecreatestrength.com. All podcasts are posted on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, and Facebook, so be sure to check them out, leave a rating, leave a review, and be sure to share them with all of your friends. I hope everyone enjoyed, and just remember that everyone has a story. Thank you.